You're listening to a sermon from Leewood Baptist Church. For more information about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. If you have a Bible this morning, turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. This summer you have heard me tell you a little bit about a residency that our church is doing for the first time this year, starting in September. Um, It's a church revitalization residency. You see, in North America, 88% of churches are in decline, are in dying, and dying. This Sunday, around North America, on average today, 12 churches will meet for the last time and close its doors. That is a tragedy. That is a tragedy. But praise God, through the North American Mission Board and other networks and resources, there is now a movement that our people are saying, we want to reclaim these dying churches and see them healthy again. Now, we need to define what healthy means. Healthy does not mean rear ends in the seats, just growing churches, big churches for the sake of growing. No, churches that have a gospel impact on the community and ultimately the ends of the earth, no matter their size, that are focused outwardly. So we as a church, God has been taking us through this process of church revitalization. And because of the great need around our nation for church revitalization and church replanting, we have started a church revitalization residency here at Leewood. And our prayer is to send these residents out to dying and declining, dying and declining churches so they can as well help stop this trend of churches dying and closing its doors. So this fall, we have the privilege of having three church revitalization residents. Um, One of ours, Mike Fitzgerald, he's been around for a year. You've gotten to know Mike. Um, He just went back with the kids. He's helping out in um, kids' worship, so we're really baptizing him by fire this morning. But Mike's working with our kids' Uh, down in their worship time. But we have two other of our residents here. I'm going to ask that they'll just stand. First, we got Stephen Ellison. He just moved here, and I know this is going to be shocking, from Birmingham, Alabama. I don't know what it is about Alabama and this church, but Stephen's going to be with us for at least a year, and he's going to be starting as, as a student at Midwestern Seminary. So we're excited to have uh, Stephen and his mom and dad are here from Alabama as well, moving him up here. And so uh, be sure if you see Stephen at the end of our worship gathering, welcome him into our faith family. We also have James and his uh, wife, Diana. Uh, They are here. They're from uh, Chillicothe, Missouri area. And so God has led them here to be a part of our revitalization residency. So as you see James and Diana, be sure to welcome them and give them a warm Leewood welcome to welcome them into our faith family. Uh, but we, are going, we define success here at Leewood by multiplication. Church health is measured by whether a church is multiplying itself. And so we're taking the steps towards that. So you're going to see these guys around this next, uh, this next year. And so they're going to be as much of a blessing. They're going to be a huge blessing to us, but we want to be a huge blessing to them. And so we're going to be their faith family. It's an exciting time in the life of our church. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we continue on. And our journey through the Gospel of John will wrap this up 
in September. That'll bring us where for the last year we've been in the Gospel of John, walking through, seeing the claims of Christ, seeing how John has presented Christ. Ultimately, that one, that we as believers will be moved to greater belief in Christ. And if there's any of us who do not believe that the Holy Spirit would use this and move us into, for the first time, belief in Christ. Well, last week we saw in John chapter 17, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, and he is praying for his disciples. We saw a prayer, a conversation between God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Father. And we talked about last week how prayer is really just a conversation, Prayer is really nothing more, just a conversation between, uh, between God and ourselves. We saw that Jesus' prayer, as some call it, the high priestly prayer here in John 17, is a conversation between God the Father, God the Son. We see that um, Jesus prayed for his disciples. He prayed for them because he knew that they were going to have a difficult time as Jesus was going to send them out to establish his church. They were going to meet difficulty. They were going to meet opposition. They were going to meet persecution. So Jesus prayed for them. And then we saw at the end of the chapter in John 17, Jesus prayed for all believers, the church, that we as the church, that we would make him known to the ends of the world and that the world would know him by the love we have for each other and the love for the world. So as we've been journeying through John specifically this summer, we saw a lot of teaching of Jesus. John chapter 13 through 16, Jesus was teaching his disciples, kind of giving them final instructions before his death and his resurrection and ascension into heaven. Last week, we kind of saw a little bit of a different flavor in this uh, gospel where Jesus prays for himself, the disciples, and the church. Now we move into narrative, really to the end of the book, where it's narrative about the, the final stages of Christ's earthly mission and ministry. So we're going to see this, all right? So turn over to John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, we have a, a Bibles in our pews. Those Bibles are meant to be given out. So if you don't own a Bible and you would like one, that is our church's gift for you to you. We would love for you to take that with you so you have a copy of God's Word with you. But we're going to be in John chapter 18. Start reading in verse 1. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kindred Valley where there was a garden, and he and his, and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told him. Jesus, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. So what's kind of interesting here, we're getting ready to see the capture of Jesus that ultimately, if you're familiar with Scripture and if you're not, that's okay. This is, we're beginning to see the capture, the arrest of Jesus that ultimately would lead to his death on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. But there's something interesting here in John 18 that we can't miss. It's interesting here that Jesus goes to a place that is familiar. 
He goes to a place that is he's been to before with his disciples. It says that, that in verse 2, that Jesus often met there with his disciples. It was a place where Judas, who was in the process of betraying him, knew that Jesus would have been there. So as we see this arrest of Jesus, we see Jesus being very intentional in what he's doing. He's very intentional. Jesus is going to a place where he had often gone with his disciples. Judas would have known that they would have been there. And so Jesus goes to a place of which he knew the location. Jesus goes there even though he knows what is about to occur. Even in verse 4 says, Jesus knowing everything that was about to happen to him. None of this that we're going to see over the next few weeks is happening by surprise of Jesus. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He is not oblivious to the reason the soldiers arrive. He knew all along. This shows, first of all, this shows Jesus, his faithfulness and his submission to the Father's will and his plan. See, Jesus is not going to go hide. Jesus is not going into hiding. This is, there's not going to be this massive search for Christ. They knew where he was going to be. And Jesus knew where they could find him. So Jesus intentionally goes to this garden. Why is Jesus being so intentional in what he is doing? Because there's a plan that is in place. There is a will that is in place. And Jesus is being faithful and submissive to this plan, to this will. But it's kind of also what's interesting in here. How do these soldiers and chief priests and Pharisees, where do they show up with? With lanterns, torches, and weapons. What we see here is a mob scene. All right. When we read this, we can think that it's just this real organized kind of, they march in line coming in. There is nothing organized about what's taking place. This is a absolutely chaotic scene. This is almost like an invasion. They come in, this mob of chief priests and officials and soldiers and Pharisees, they come there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, I've said this before, when we read Scripture, we don't want to read Scripture like a newspaper. We could read this and be like, okay, this is what's happening. No, put yourself in this passage. Read it like a movie script. This mob comes, and it's interesting. They don't know much about Jesus. Because where has Jesus ever stirred up any kind of riots and, and, and chaotic scenes? I mean, there's been a couple of times where he's turned over the, uh, the tables in the, the temple. So maybe that's what they thought that maybe he could do. But they are, they are arriving to, to capture Jesus. And Jesus is not being captured here. This is not a capture This is a turning of himself over because they're not going to do anything that Jesus doesn't allow him to do. So this is not a capture. This is not even a surrender. This is Jesus turning himself over to accomplish a greater plan. Let's keep going. Verses 6 through 11. Look at it with me. It says here, When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. 
I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those who, who, who lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that time, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? See, again, we see Jesus is not being captured here. There's not even a struggle going on here. He is in control of the entire situation. And we see another divine statement by Christ here in verse 6, another claim to deity. You say, Adam, really? Yeah, look at verse 6. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Now, why would they fall to the ground when Jesus says, I am he? All throughout the Gospel of John, we've been seeing I am statements. Remember these? Remember at the, the woman at the well, Jesus told her, I am what? The living water. After Jesus had fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes, what did he teach his disciples? I am the bread of life. Jesus has made claims, I am the light of the world. Jesus has made all of these I am statements, and every one of these I am statements is a direct claim to deity. Because think all the way back to Exodus, if you're familiar with Scripture, and if you're not, go back and read it. All the way back in Exodus, do you remember there was a situation where there was a bush that was burning but wasn't really burning? There was a guy, Moses, who's out watching his father-in-law's sheep, and he looks up on the mountainside, and he sees this burning bush. Moses goes up there, and God explains to Moses, I want you to lead my covenant people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And what does Moses ask? Well, who sent me? They're going to ask me, what right does it give you? What authority do you have to lead us out of Egypt? And what did God, Jehovah, what Yahweh, what did God tell Moses? Say, I am sent me. See, that's a claim to the eternal nature of God. Because throughout every period of time of history, before history, after history, all of eternal past, present, and future, God has existed. So no matter what period of time we see, I am. God has always existed. And so Jesus says here, they ask him, who, Jesus asks, what are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. And when he says that statement, I am he, Jesus is saying, I am God. And the power of that statement, now I don't know what scientifically caused this. I don't know if it was an earthquake. I don't know if, if it's a force field. And quite frankly, it doesn't really matter. But when Jesus makes this claim to being God, I am he, they stepped back and they fell to the ground. Now what's interesting is these yahoos, they're still going to try to get him. I mean, if I'm one of these soldiers, if I'm in that mob and he says, I am he, and I step back, I fall to the ground, I say, I'm out. I'm out. But they go through with it. And Jesus told, told them, I am he. He says, if you're looking for me, let these men go. Talking about his disciples, letting the disciples go. 
And so Jesus here, even though he's the God of the entire, entire universe, we see his deity right here, his divine nature. We see Jesus' submission to the redemptive plan, the Godhead. You see, God in his great love put a redemptive plan into motion. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were in a garden, the Garden of Eden. They disobeyed God. They thought they knew better than God. And so they eat of the fruit that God told them to do. And so then the human race was then cursed by sin. And in that dark moment in Genesis chapter 3, God gives Adam and Eve a glimmer of hope. Because Satan is there in the form of a servant, and God tells Satan that through Eve's offspring, there would be one where Satan would strike a bruise on his heel. Yes, a lethal blow. We're going to see that lethal blow. But ultimately, this offspring would crush his head. So we see the first messianic prophecy and uh, and promise in Genesis 3, and God put into motion a redemptive plan to redeem the human race back to himself. And we see throughout the Old Testament that God uses his covenant people, Israel, to bring about the Messiah. The Messiah comes in Jesus, and now Jesus is going to have the the climax of the redemptive plan and his submission and his faithfulness to the Father's will and the plan. And he is going to hit the climax of the redemptive plan through his crucifixion and resurrection. But what's interesting here, there is nothing that's going to stop this redemptive plan. Not even Mr. Hothead Peter is going to stop this redemptive plan. Peter sees what's going on, and Peter's ready to fight. He is quick to fight. He is ready to fight. He draws a sword out. He cuts off the high priest's servant's ear, and we see Jesus in other gospel accounts puts the ear back on. I mean, the Bible is a gruesome book, okay? This is not a clean book at all. Simon Peter cuts off his ear. Jesus puts it back on. And then here in verse 11, Jesus tells Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? So again, nothing is going to stop this redemptive plan. So then when verses 12 through 14, we see Jesus is then arrested. He's taken to the high priest to have a trial. But let's skip down to verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, Simon Peter was following Jesus as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest. So he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, you are one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves and Peter was standing with them warming himself. 
So Peter and another disciple, they follow Jesus. This other disciple knew the high priest and somehow had some kind of access to get into this courtyard. And so he brings Peter in and it's cold that that night. And Peter's warming himself by a fire as others were. And this girl speaks to him and tells him, you're one of this man's disciples, aren't you? You're one of his followers, And so Peter, who in one moment is courageous and cutting off a dude's ear, has now turned from courageous to cowardly. And he denies it. He tells this servant girl, she's a doorkeeper, which basically means she holds the door. That's all she does. She holds the door. She's not that important. And Peter says, "I, I don't know who he is. I'm not. So he denies Christ, but let's keep looking. Look at verse 25. Jesus is before uh, Annas, the high priest. They question him, verses 19 through 23. They question him. Annas eventually bounds him and sends him to Caiaphas. But look down at verse 25 at Peter again. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, you are one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man, oh boy, this is about to get good, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it, immediately a rooster crowed. So now Peter again, standing and warming himself, they ask him, you're one of his disciples. You're one of the followers. And now we that, that language, disciple, follower, that doesn't really register with us. But discipleship was really, really important in this day and age. When you are a follower, a disciple of someone, you spent almost every waking hour with them. You were basically identifying with what this person believes. I believe it too. So if your rabbi, your teacher, your leader was being put on trial they might be coming for you next. So Peter's thinking all of this through, and they ask him, you're one of this Jesus' disciples. He says, I'm not. Other gospel accounts says that he curses and says, I am not one of his, his disciples. And I think verse 26 is hilarious. I don't know. There's something funny about it to me, because here a relative of the guy who got his ear cut off standing there, Would you imagine that? Talk about just a little bit of tension. And so this relative of the guy who got his ear cut off said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Like, obviously, this guy would remember who Peter is, whether it's a brother, a cousin, whoever, some relative knows this guy cut off my relative's ear and recognize him. And Peter denies him again, and immediately a rooster crowed, just like Jesus had said. Because Peter had told Christ, I would never deny you. I will always stay loyal to you. And Jesus had told him, by the time the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And here we see the prophecy of Christ come true. So in one moment in Peter's life, we see him as being courageous. He's willing to fight. He cuts this guy's ear off. And now he's being cowardly. He's he's being unloyal, unfaithful to Christ. 
And see, in this passage, what we see here, we see the commitment of Christ to the redemptive plan, but we see human nature on display as well. Because we see Peter's unfaithfulness. Though Christ had been incredibly faithful to to Peter, though Christ was getting ready to give of himself for Peter's sins, Peter is selling him out. And it's easy for us, and I've been in this place when I've read this passage or other gospel accounts of it, and I said, what is Peter's problem? Why would Peter sell Christ out like this? But then when we begin to evaluate our own personal lives, how often do we, on a day-in and day-out basis, sell out Christ? Where though Christ has been faithful to us, committed to redeem us, he submitted himself to the Father's will and the redemptive plan, even if we're a follower of Christ, we are unfaithful. How often do we have opportunities to share Christ with someone and tell them about Jesus and share the gospel with them and we don't take that opportunity? And I'm guilty, okay? I'm not saying I'm good at this either. Or we live in a way where we try to put on a spiritual front and try to impress spiritually, but when really in reality we're no different than a pagan and we're rotted on the inside and we're selling Christ out. Or we like to be around Jesus. I'm sure Peter enjoyed the notoriety that came with being a disciple of Christ and Peter was there when Jesus had come in the triumphant entry into Jerusalem and just a few days before, and Peter was a follower of Christ, very close with Christ, but when the rubber met the road, Peter's unfaithful. And how often do we like to kind of hang around Christ and we like to have the label of Christian, good person, and we're a fan of Jesus, but when the rubber meets the road, we're unfaithful. And part of it, we can't help it. Because that's our human nature. We are by nature, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, children of wrath. There's nothing we can do about it. We are sinful. But Christ gave of himself, submitted himself to the Father's will and redemptive plan, because though we are unfaithful, though we are unloyal, though we sell him out, Christ died for us. So if you're here this morning, this is the first time you've ever heard these things, and maybe you don't know who Jesus is, and you have a lot of questions, can I just tell you, Jesus has won before you were even born. As a part of the Godhead, He put God put into motion a redemptive plan to fix your broken relationship with Him. And God went to great lengths for relationship with you. God became a human being. He submitted himself to his own wrath, his own punishment for sin, and died to reconcile, to fix your broken relationship with him. 
Though you are unlovable, though you are rebellious to God, he went to great lengths to save you and put a plan that took thousands of years to develop, put a plan in place to make himself known to you. So believe. You may be here and you are a follower of Christ and we see When we look at Peter, when I look at Peter, I see a lot of myself. Willing to perhaps look spiritual, but when the rubber meets the road, I may have a tendency to sell Christ out. Because I'm sinful. And you're sinful. And we need Jesus. We desperately need Jesus. And so we must believe. We must follow. We must, as we've talked about all summer, abide, continue in his love so that we can be obedient. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for that redemptive plan that you put together from even before you created the world, you knew this was how you were going to manifest your glory to the world and make yourself known as God, and we say thank you. Thank you for making a way for salvation, a way for relationship, Thank you for the great links that you went to. Thank you for for coming to this earth to identify with us as human beings and dying on the cross so we can be saved, so we can walk in union with you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would just see, open their eyes to this reality, this plan that this will you had put into place to Draw them to yourself. Show them that in a way that only you can. Show them the redemptive plan that you've put into motion to save them. And I pray for those of us who claim to be your followers, forgive us for being unfaithful. Forgive us for at times selling out on you. And I pray that even as you did with Peter, that you would redeem us as your followers, make us more like you. And even as you used Peter in an unbelievable way to make you known to the world, use us. Help us in our individual lives and corporately as a faith family to make it all about you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you're in the Kansas City area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 8200 State Line Road in Leawood, Kansas. Worship services are on Sunday mornings at 1030. To learn more about us, visit our website at leawoodbaptist.com.